This little anthem, what a challenge to be seen. Listen to all you hypocrites saying you're happy all day long. <laughs> all we hypocrites. What does that mean, now I'm happy all the day? Well, it means that my situation is that I'm no longer separated from God, headed to the lake of fire because of God's grace. And I no longer am alienated from God, but I have an eternal relationship with him. And when I think about that, that is a great cause for rejoicing. And even if I don't think about it, there's still no way, there's still no way in Christ that I can be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whether you're positionally in a happy circumstance? Are you really embracing it and thinking it through? What a great reminder that it's true all day long. We've assembled the fellowship with God and His Word on His terms, and that requires uh, the work of the Spirit of God in us. In the time in which we live, Jesus prophesied to the Samaritan woman that there was coming a time when it wouldn't be that you worship in Jerusalem or in the temple, but that those that worship God would do it in the Spirit and in truth. And we're here tonight in the power of the Holy Spirit to embrace the truth of God's precious word. So let's make sure we're in fellowship with God. I always give you a moment for silent prayer, a little self-assessment and uh, confession if needed to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we're assembled tonight to bring honor and glory and praise to you with every step we take, with every day of our lives. We know this requires inculcation in your word, training and instruction in righteousness, and all that you bring to us as we pay attention to your precious word. We know that our greatest goal and objective is occupation with your son, a constant focus on him, and to see our lives through the lens of what you've given us in the scriptures, which is to see our lives in Christ. Father, let us say, because of the time we spend in your word with the Apostle Paul, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let this bring glory and honor to you in all that we think, say, and do tonight and always. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To introduce things a little bit tonight for, for uh, a little fun with the calendar, maybe you know that... Monday, and I think the way this works is Sunday night to Monday night. Um, in the Jewish calendar, it was a special holiday called Rosh Hashanah. Now, I grew up thinking that was called Rosh Hashanah, but it's actually Rosh Hashanah because the accent goes to the last syllable generally in Hebrew, especially on the A-H ending, Rosh Hashanah. Can you say that? Rosh Hashanah? That means Rosh, head, and Hashanah of the year. Rosh, head of the year, and so it's the new year. It's New Year's Day, Sunday night to Monday night. So I guess that's Monday. Uh, was the new year uh, in the Jewish calendar. It's also called uh, Yom Teruah, or the Feast of Trumpets. Yom Teruah is the word for the blast of the trumpet. It's an um, onomatopoeia, which you all know in your Wednesday night advanced Bible karate class that that's a word that sounds like what it is. Teruah is the sound you make on a shofar or a Jewish trumpet, a ram's horn. Teruah, that's where that comes from, Yom Teruah, the day of the blast. And so one of the traditions, one of the rituals of Yom 
Torah or Rosh Hashanah is to blow the trumpet or blow the, the shofar um, in calling the nation to repentance and um, reminding everyone of what we're here for in a way. And um, it's also considered largely by Messianic Jewish scholars, that's Bible-believing Christians of Jewish extraction who um, are of the culture of, uh, of Judaism generally. They'll, they'll identify the fulfillment of the ritual of Yom Teruah, the, Teruah, the, 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 the trumpet blast, with the, um, the coming of Christ in the clouds. The Apostle Paul says, the Messianic Jewish uh, rabbi who uh, was sent to the Gentiles as the Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep, that's believers who have died, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. The topic have my loved ones who passed away missed out on what you told us about when you came through before Paul told us about Jesus coming for us to catch us up to him in the clouds as Jesus told the disciples in John 14 verses 1 through 3. That's what, uh, that's what the topic is. What about those who have died and therefore they missed it because they couldn't go in the event? And so Jesus says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So when Jesus comes in the coming he's describing into the clouds, we won't go up first before the dead in Christ go up first, is what he's saying, those who have fallen asleep. So Paul's whole point in the, the great rapture passage of First Thess 4 is the order, the sequence it goes in. The dead in Christ have the privilege of going first. And he says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's not that we'll be comforted in ignorance, we'll be comforted in, in understanding. And the prophecy that Paul just gave us is of this sensational event where whoever is alive in Christ on the planet, when this happens, will be caught up. The word harpazo, as hopefully you all know, in verse 17, the word, we who are alive and remain will be caught up, that that language of the catching up is the Greek verb harpazo, translated with the Latin verb rapto in the Vulgate. And that's where we get the word for this event that he describes, rapture. It comes from the Latin Vulgate. I like to call it the second King James Version. The first King James Version was the Septuagint when they translated the Old Testament into Greek. And then everybody had their, their Bible in their language. And the second time this happened, big time it happened, was when everyone was speaking Latin. And, and they got the Latin version with Jerome, especially with his Vulgate. And so everyone wants to preach out of the Latin. It's got to be the Latin, like, just like Jesus. Jesus never spoke Latin that we know of. Uh, nothing in the Bible about Latin. But, but it was an early translation. It's very valuable for many reasons um, in the study of the Word, and as, as all the early translations are. Um, and so the Vulgate was, for example, Augustine loved the Latin Bible and didn't know anything about Hebrew and chose, and it's theology. And, uh, and so, you know, now today, English. It's got to be this English verse. Well, we've been translating the Bible since, uh, since God gave it to us. 
into the languages of the people. And there was a long hiatus where they didn't. It was just all Latin. And then Luther said, let's, let's put it in the language of the people. And you got Luther Bible. And eventually the English versions came out. And praise God for a Bible in our language. But rapto is Latin, and it means the catching up. So when Jesus catches those on earth up to be in the clouds, when that happens, the dead in Christ will rise first. And this is something Paul believed could have happened to him. He includes himself in the generation. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds. He, he thought that could be him, we. So he was thinking in terms of any moment because it could have been we. And there's no prophecy in the scriptures that, have to be, that needs, needs to be fulfilled before this event. There's no setup. There's no uh, setting of the stage. There's nothing the scriptures require because Paul said, we who are alive and remain, whoever it is. And the, we know this has to be the way they're thinking because they're asking about their loved ones who have passed away. These people that were worried about this, the Thessalonian problem, they all died uh, 2,000 years ago. They're all the dead in Christ now. And they had this question they asked Paul, well, if it comes in our time, what about our, our grandparents or our parents? It's okay. The dead in Christ will rise first. And that may be you and me. And it may not be. We may be the ones that get to go up second because we never face physical, physical death. It's, it's, a, it's an event. And we read about it in 1 Corinthians 15 in the same way. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the twinkle of an eye at the last trumpet. And, the, and theologians and scholars and everybody, pastors, they argue about when this is going to happen. I believe we teach, we insist absolutely dogmatically on a pre-tribulation rapture. We believe Jesus comes back for the church before he pours out his wrath on the, the earth dwellers because that's the revealed purpose of the tribulation period. It isn't wrath on the bride, it is the, um, the judgment of the nations and Israel. But, um, but this is our hope. Titus 2 calls it our blessed hope. And we live in anticipation of this event. And Yom Teruah, or Rosh Hashanah, points to it, most uh, of the people aware of the rabbinic traditions and uh, the messianic community that are really focused on the Jewish holidays revealed in Leviticus, they'll point to this and say the, the, the fulfillment we think this is is when Jesus raptures the church. And I'm, I'm not dogmatic about that, but uh, certainly is a time to mention it. Some will actually say it has to happen on Rosh Hashanah. The rapture has to be one year on that day. And I don't think that works. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think it has to be on that day. I think it probably won't be. But, um, but if it is on that day, you got another year. Because it just happened on Monday. So. But I don't think anybody knows when it's going to be or, or what day of the year or any of that. So, um, Dr. Pentecost would tell you to um, wash your dishes, put your shoes in a line, make your bed. Because the, the boss may come inspect any time. Live as though today. And that's, the, that's really the purpose of the doctrine of the rapture. It isn't to tell us that we, we live however we want because we, we don't have to go through the tribulation. Christians have been in tribulation since the very beginning when Stephen was stoned to death by the, 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 the crowd, the religious crowd in, in Jerusalem. But the, the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven years, is for... Uh, the earth dwellers, it's for the unbelievers. And there's going to be a massive uh, coming to Jesus because of this event. And so uh, the reason, I'm, again, for the doctrine of the rapture, in my view, from the scriptures, is so that we are living our lives in anticipation 
of the judgment seat of Christ. It is, you don't know when the test is. If you know you have two weeks until the exam, then you might fritter away a week and a half and then really start cramming three days before. You can't do that with this one. The judgment seat of Christ is coming and you have no idea when. And so is that bus that you didn't notice that, that, that makes you one of the dead in Christ. You don't know when your opportunity to serve Him concludes and you don't have any guarantees for tomorrow. The doctrine of the rapture, like any time I do any encouragement at a funeral, any time there is the consideration of our death, our mortality, it makes us remember that today, today is the opportunity to serve Him. Today is the measure of, of the life that God's given me and every day needs to be about him. So let's get to Isaiah chapter 19 and discuss Egypt. I had a fantastic question. It is time to do a little bit of a summary of Isaiah. What is the outline? I'm getting lost in the oracles against the Gentile nations. This is almost the conclusion. We're almost to, um, we're in chapter 19. We're almost to chapter 23 where the corner turns in chapter 24 and 25. But but here's one possible Isaiah outline. It's the most basic one I was able to find by Charles Dyer and Eugene Merrill's um, work in the Nelson Old Testament survey. And so the way they do it, the first big chunk is Isaiah chapters 1 through 35, prophecies of judgment. Uh, that's a very broad. This is a kind of a catalog way of saying just kind of what we see. And it's not, it doesn't really relate the pieces uh, in any kind of analytical way. It just tells you the catalog. So prophecies of judgment. And so God's judgment on Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel in Isaiah's day in Isaiah chapters 1 through 12. And I agree with keeping that as a, as a unit. And then God's judgment on surrounding nations, chapters 13 through 23. And that's where we are in our study. And then God's judgment on all the earth in chapters 24 through 35. And so you can see, well, that's pretty cool. That's like an expansion. It's, you know, from Judah to uh, the surrounding nations around Judah to the ends of the earth. That's, that's a neat progression. Is that what Isaiah is doing is a question. But that's how uh, Dyer and Merrill came up with it. Both, by the way, scholars and theologians, I would, I would say read all their stuff. Read everything you can get from Gene Merrill or Charles Dyer. Isaiah's historical bridge, which we've done a lot of in the Syrian crisis with Sennacherib and um, Rav Shachah and all that, uh, chapters 36 through 39 is this kind of appendix, but they put it as bullet number two as the bridge, which takes you uh, a look back, Hezekiah and Assyria, and a look forward, Hezekiah dealing with Babylon, and that's chapters 36, 37, 38, 39. So that's a nice little summary of four chapters there. A look back where Hezekiah is dealing, the king in Judah is dealing with Assyria, which we talked about, and it ends with uh, the angel of the Lord killing the army of Assyria, and then the Sennacherib, the king, being killed by his children. The look forward is Hezekiah really messes up and shows the Babylonians his treasuries and is told by Isaiah, they're going to wipe you out and take all this treasury, but it won't be in your time. And Hezekiah idiotically says, well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Your kids are going to deal with it. You're not going to deal with it. Um, but, uh, but that's the middle. That's like the historical sort of narrative section. And then the third big piece, look at chapters 40 through 66. They put the whole thing, prophecies of comfort, where you have so much messianic Christology, so much. Uh, and by the way, you say messianic Christology. That's, that's like saying anointed, anointedology. Because Messiah and Christ are the same word in different languages. Um, it's, it's the view of the coming Messiah, especially in his suffering, where we had in chapters 1 through 12 about his coming to rule. 
So prophecies of comfort, 40 through 66, where you have God's deliverance in 40 through 48, God's deliverer in 49 through 57, and God's delivered. So um, these men uh, were associates with Charles Ryrie. He was a little bit ahead of them in, in age, especially of Dyer. He might have been a student of Ryrie's. Ryrie loves to alliterate, and so you get some Ryrie sounding stuff at the end. God's deliverance, God's deliverer, God's delivered. And so this is, this is a really interesting way to put Isaiah together in a, in a kind of a simple catalog. But there's 66 chapters in Isaiah, except for the four chapters of interlude, it's universally poetry. Every poem has to be interpreted poetically, and that's fun, but a challenge. It's not, you know, it's, it's art, not just, uh, you know, history. So so as you've seen, as we've been walking through Isaiah, there are some challenges, and it's part of the joy of it is accepting the challenge, right, and climbing the hill. Here's a more uh, sophisticated outline by uh, Alec J. Motyer, who has the best commentary, exegetical commentary uh, on Isaiah in English in terms of his exhaustiveness. And uh, he says chapters 1 through 37 is the book of the king. So he divides the little historical prelude thing in the middle. I won't go through the whole thing with you, but um, the second, like we're in the middle of this, right? We're in the the universal kingdom part. The way he does it, the the the, the preface is Judah and God's problem with them and His solution for them, and then the triumph of grace in chapter six through twelve, and then the universal kingdom is the way Matthew talks about it, where God, the King, real King in Judah, is really the Lord over all the nations. And so he's expressing that as he deals with the nations in chapters 13 through 27. And then the Lord of history in 28 through 37. So it's an interesting thing that uh, the way, and, and I'll just show you the way this one concludes, the way he does the conclusion or puts this together is the angel of the Lord kills the Assyrians and blows everyone's mind, fulfills a lot of the prophecies in chapters 13 through uh, 23. So it, it, it's emphasizing the way he, this man put it together that, that God is the Lord over history because it's the book of the king. He re- relates it all back to that. That's the big theme that's being developed. The book of the servant, he has Isaiah 38 through 55, and the servant would be, would be the servant of Yahweh, Ebed Yahweh, who is uh, the coming Messiah, the suffering servant. And so he, he takes the historical prologue of Hezekiah's mistake in chapters 38 and 39 and says this introduces the servant. And so the consolation of the world is in chapters 40 through 42. The redemption of Israel is 42 through 44. The great deliverance is 44 through 48. And the great, greater deliverance is 49 through 55. So a huge chunk of Isaiah. And, and by the way, this is your light, enjoyable, curl up by the fire as the days get short and the nights grow long and you're cold and you have some time and you have a, a, a warm beverage of your, cho- of your choosing, this is something to, to, to read through, pray through, think through, just in your English Bible. This section of, the, the, this includes Psalm 53 and the prophecies of Messiah, um, the, the greater deliverance. I mean, as, as lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to just skip to that part and read it and think on that. But as, uh, as committed OCD biblicists, we have to go verse by verse through the whole book. So until the Lord comes back uh, or until we finish, whichever happens first. And then he says, then the way Meyer did it, the book of the anointed conqueror, Isaiah chapters 56 through 66. So he sees uh, a break 
in the, in the theme at chapter 55 where we're not talking about the suffering servant anymore, but the Messiah who is the coming king, the coming king in victory. And so it kind of makes a bookend with the, the book of the king in the first part. That's the way he understands it to work. The idea on the actual um, in 56 through 59, boy, we're talking scholarship now when we've we got our, our t- title of three chapters of the ideal and the actual. Um, the needs and sins of the Lord's people, the coming of the anointed conqueror in 59 through 63, and then what you do about it, prayer and response, uh, especially regarding the new heavens and new earth in 63 through 66. So this is, this is what, um, this is, by the way, this man died in 2016. He was an Irish uh, pastor uh, in the Anglican system, and uh, so rector, and, um, and a Bible studies professor in college and seminary. And again, as a, as a bibliophile, as a student of the Word, he, uh, he has the best exhaustive commentary on Isaiah in English. Um, and uh, I saw him do a presentation on the gospel earlier today, just checking him out, and uh, he has a very clear faith in Christ as your Savior, not by your works message of the gospel, which doesn't surprise me that it's coming out of Ireland, if you know um, the last couple hundred years of church history. Dr. Constable, and you can get his notes, and I totally recommend Tom Constable's notes as a study aid as you're studying the Bible. They're free. The Genesis one prints out to that thick, an eight and a half by 11 paper. Um, so it's an actual weighty commentary, word by word, verse by verse, through the, through the Bible. He's got every book of the Bible. You can look it up. You, go, you write Tom Constable Sonic Light or Plano Bible Chapel, and you find it's free. And um, I can show you that sometime. But Constable has an outline for every book of the Bible, and, and like your study Bible will. And he does it this way. He says, you've got your introduction in chapters 1 through 5. You've got Isaiah's vision in chapter 6. And then you have Israel's crisis of faith, chapter 7 through 39. So that's a deep uh, swimming pool to fall into. Chapters 7 through 39. Now, here, here's the fun thing about Isaiah to me is that there are 39 chapters, or th- sorry, 39 books of the Old Testament the way we count them. Now, the, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, has the, all the same verses, but they don't count the books the same way because they don't dis- differentiate between first and second kings. It's kings and things like that. So, so, but, but the way in our English Bible, 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament, well, Isaiah turns a corner, everybody recognizes, in chapter 39. And the judgment oracles are less, and the salvation oracles are more. And so we, we have it as Isaiah is like a, a miniature Bible. 39 chapters of judgment, 27 chapters of the coming Messiah. Um, that's not exactly a breakdown of Isaiah, but it is interesting that the numbers worked out, out that way. So uh, in chapter 7 through 12, the way Constable did it, you've got the, the, the crisis of Assyria, the choice that the house of David has to make between God and Assyria. And, um, and we've just worked through all that, and um, I could see that arrangement, but I think chapters 1 through 12 are a unit. God's sovereignty over the nations is where we are in 13 through 35, where we're going to hear about his oracle toward Egypt. And then the test of Israel's trust in the sort of the appendix narrative section, 36 through 39, that's how Constable did it. So Roman numeral 4, Israel's calling in the world, 40 through 55, what is their calling? Well, in chapter 12 of Genesis, one of the, the three things, or the three key th- things that God said to Abraham in the original statement of the promise that would be cut as the covenant in Genesis 15, what God said to Abraham was that he would be a blessing to all the nations. 
And he says it in an imperative form. He says it in a form that's a command. You will be a blessing to all the nations. And so the blessing to all the nations shows up in our section here. We'll hear it tonight in chapter 19. But it also, it's very clear that we're talking about the Messiah who is the Savior of Israel, but he's the Savior of the world. So Israel's calling is God's grace to Israel in 40 through 48, God's atonement for Israel in 49 through 55, and then you have the future kingdom in view the way he saw it in 56 through 66. Notice Motyer made this division too, 56 through 66. So the scholars all kind of are trying to understand, but you have to see with a book like Isaiah, it's not like reading Habakkuk. Habakkuk is chapters 1 and 2, Habakkuk has a dialogue with God. He calls out to the Lord, as you and I often will, and then God does something that he usually doesn't do with us. He talks back to him audibly where Habakkuk says, oh, I'm having a conversation. Chapters 1 and 2 of Habakkuk is, oh, Lord, what are you doing? Why don't you get rid of the wickedness? God says, I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar and kill everybody. And Habakkuk then says, whoa, 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 I didn't mean that. And, and that's chapters 1 and 2. And then chapter 3 is a, is a psalm. It's a psalm of praise. Uh, on, on par with anything David or Isaiah wrote and, and for its poetry and its beauty and its, its, uh, its imagery. It's a phenomenal uh, poem when you read it as a poem and of God's deliverance, uh, ultimate deliverance. And so um, that's Habakkuk. It's easy. It's very easy to do the structure. The structure for Isaiah is a huge database. It's a huge data set to have in your head to see how the whole thing fits together. And that, that's why people I respect who've worked on it all their lives will come down a little differently on how it fits together. And by the way, did I mention it's Hebrew poetry? And so you have to do that at the level of the verse and the versette and how they rhyme, and that's it's always fun. All right, so uh, chapters 56 through 59 Constable points out that we can't. We're unable in, in, in chapter 56 through 59. But then uh, we have future glory in 60 through 62 and divine ability in 63 through 66. So that's a pretty tight way he put this together. Um, and um, so I'm a work in progress 30 or 40 years from now. Maybe I could tell you what I think uh, about these, these, or maybe 20 months from now, I could tell you how I feel about the way these are arranged. But um, but as we work through it, uh, we're definitely in the section where God is expressing his sovereignty over the nations and giving oracles from the Hebrew prophet in Judah, reflecting, respecting the nations around them. And this is the part we've been in, chapters 13 through 23. I'm calling it the book of the nations, however you want to describe it. And we just finished with what I believe is Ethiopia, Matyer doesn't think it's too Ethiopia, but I think it is because it calls it, it says Alasso or Hoi, Oi, the, the people of the land of the warring wings. But now we move to Egypt. We move to Egypt. And remember, Egypt, at this part in history, is probably being ruled by Nabataean or Ethiopian or southern, um, from further south, uh, peoples that are uh, have taken over Egypt. Uh, and so you have the, uh, the, the, the Ethiopic or Cushite um, pharaohs. That's probably why Egypt and Ethiopia are mentioned together uh, in, this, in this section. Of course, I have to outline it for you. We don't want another outline. Um, but we're just going to read it because it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty clear what's happening. And uh, in 26 verses, we're going to go from Egypt being... 
um, under God's direct discipline and correction through Assyria to Egypt being the people of God in the coming millennial kingdom of Christ. That's what's about to happen. So in verse 1 through 4, you have God versus the idols, and it's a beautiful picture. And God rides in on a cloud. And Isaiah is ironically uh, calling out Baal, who rides on a cloud. But Baal doesn't exist, and God does exist, and he made the clouds, and he's portrayed as coming in with vengeance, riding in on a cloud. In verses 5 through 10, judgment through nature. The, the Nile's going to dry up, and the Egyptians are going to fail in their industry because uh, God brings a drought. And uh, again, the irony is Baal sends the rain. So God comes in on a cloud in the first five verses, and then in the next six, uh, he shuts down the rain, <laughs> which if you know anything about Egypt, their whole history and economy and everything depends on the Nile River overflowing its banks in the flood season so that you get fertile ground and this deposit and everything, and then you can grow your crops. And so if the Nile doesn't do its job, then we suffer, and that's what happens here. In verses 11 through 15, uh, God brings judgment and an extended discussion of fools in government. And I thought that would resonate with us. It's so good when God does this, when he tells us that this is one of the ways he judges a nation. We have it earlier, we have it earlier, I believe, in Isaiah chapter 5, that you're ruled by children. And one of the judgments God is going to promise to bring on Judah because of their idolatry is foolish rulership. Fools who are rulers. All right, in verses 16 through 17, a summary judgment and then the shock. 18 through 26, Egypt, my people. And that is eternal blessing for these people because God in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23 is the God of the universe and he has a purpose for all people and that purpose depends on his plan and purpose through his chosen people, the apple of his eye, Israel. And the history of mankind and the salvation of mankind and the glory of God in the actions of mankind is about God's works for mankind through Israel. And so the Jewish prophet has something to say about the near future and the distant future of these Egyptian people, the Mitzrayim, which is the original name of the original Egyptian, the Hamitic descendant named Mitzrayim. Every time you see the word Egypt in your English Bible, it's translating the Hebrew word Mitzrayim, just the name. It was a man's name, and and the people were named after him, and they all became this people, like calling people Jacob. Israel is Jacob. Well, Mitzrayim, Egypt is the people of Mitzrayim. All right. We said verses 1 through 5, give us a chunk, give us a, give us a picture. So the oracle concerning Egypt, this word oracle occurs only a handful of times. Usually it's a judgment, uh, a word of judgment, and it does help us with the structure. This is a place where we put a paragraph break or a chapter break. This is a new message. When did he give it? We don't know when he gave it. It's probably, I mean, I am certain it was before 671 B.C. when uh, Assyria finally did conquer Egypt. How's that? I know it's before that. I think it's pretty close to when uh, the Hezekiah event, probably in the reign of Hezekiah, because it's in that crisis that everyone's scrambling for how can we make alliances to fight off the Assyrians. But the Assyrians are God's instrument. They're his dirty uh, 
uh, hammer that he's bringing to smash these countries, and they're not going to make an alliance to fight off Assyrians. They're going to they're judge the people. So the oracle concerning Egypt, he says, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. Everybody catching the poetic imagery? It's one of the, the devices of a poet is to say something concrete that gives you a visual idea in your head of what's going on. We've got these you know, millions, they say, of gods in Egypt and thousands of idols and all kinds of things. And you've got your chief gods that we've heard about and studied in our thumbnail Egyptology. And you can go in the encyclopedia and read about Ra and Isis and all this stuff. But, uh, but, but um, the idols of Egypt, he's calling out idolatry, are going to tremble at his presence. Now that's funny because the same writer has already said there's nothing in an idol. It's just a piece of wood or stone or, or mineral. But the idols are portrayed here as trembling at Yahweh's presence. That's the name, the, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor. City against city and kingdom against kingdom. So one of the judgments God brings on Gentile nations in this description, just observing it, is internal strife. It's, it's a portrait of civil war of some sort, that they're fighting city against city. And they're, and they're opposed to one another. And that confusion and that, that dissension is a wrath of God judgment that he brings. So the idols are portrayed as trembling and the people are at odds with one another. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them and I will confound their strategy and so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master and a mighty king will rule over them. And the history is 671 B.C. Esarhaddon, the Assyrian warlord, conquered Egypt. Um, in, in one of their kind of last hurrah events. The farthest reaches that the Assyrian Empire got was, uh, was down to Egypt. Do I have a, you know, have a picture of it? So this, all these colors on the map up here are showing the extent of the, uh, the Assyrian conquest. They eventually did come through and take out Egypt and Ethiopia. Take out meaning they conquered them and ruled them after uh, defeating whatever military op, uh, defense they had. All right, a mighty king will rule over them. So this is your summary of God's judgment on Egypt. He's going to bring Assyria. And he's already said this to Judah. He said it to the northern kingdom. Assyria is God's dirty instrument, and God doesn't get dirty using it. And Assyria isn't good, and they're not good people, and they're not working for God on purpose. They're doing whatever they want to do. And God's so big and sovereign and omnipotent that he can use these Assyrians doing whatever they want to destroy and judge who he wants to judge. And so he says that here. But notice that God is behind it. It's um, something we haven't seen directly stated, but it's always been true. God's there. I'm going to come in on a swift cloud, and the, the, the idols have nothing to do. They're, they're going to be quaking in their boots because the real God shows up. And so there's real power here, and I'm going to cause these problems for these Egyptians. So in verse 5, we go to the natural environment what happens in nature? This isn't, Assyrians can't do what he's going to describe in 5 through 10. This famine and this desolation is going to come because God dries up the Nile. The waters from the sea will dry up and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. 
The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up, and the reeds and rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry, be driven away, and be no more. And so what, just real quick, when you're reading your Hebrew scriptures, when you're reading your Old Testament, the waters from the sea is a, is a part of a poetic statement. And the river is another water body. So waters from the sea and the river will dry up, will be parched and dry. They're the same thought stated twice. See that? So if we, dig, if we dug here a little bit, as I tend to do in Hebrew poetry when I'm not trying to hurry, um, we would look at these comparisons of parallels, and I'm choosing to uh, survey a little bit this with you. The waters of the sea. So then the canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. So emitting a stench and thinning out and drying up are the same event, and the canals and the streams are the same. So this is how, this is how Hebrew poetry works, and this is why it's one of the reasons it's so challenging to figure out the structure of the entire of Isaiah's oracles. Anyway, you can see here that God acts in nature and shuts down the Nile River, and it's a mess. Wow, with that, with a little air, I feel like we could revive a little bit. We could, we could probably make another 45 minutes out of this, I think. Let's, let's go. <laughs> Maybe we should get into the Hebrew poetry uh, parallelism a little bit. All right, so, so we went from God is going to, in some supernatural way, cause the people to fight each other, and eventually he's going to bring Assyria, and now he's going to attack them with nature. Now, he did this with Ahab. You remember the story of Ahab and uh, Elijah? He sends his prophet to say, no more rain until I say, and then I'm out. I disappear, and then Ahab wants to kill Elijah because they go for three years without rain. All right, well, God's going to do this miraculous thing again where why is there no water in the Nile? Well, we don't know why the Nile dried up in whatever year after this, but when this happened, after God brought this oracle, it was because God did it and he said he was going to do it. The fishermen will lament and those who cast a line to the Nile will mourn. Help me out. Look at the line, verse 8. Who is the fisherman in the first line, the fisherman? Who is it in the second line? Who is the second line that, that rhymes with fishermen? Those who cast a line. See how fit, line A says fishermen, line B says those who cast a line. That's Hebrew poetry. Now what's the rhyme? They will lament, they will mourn. So the, there's industry problems. Those who spread nets on the waters will pine away. So it's a triple. Those who fish, those who cast a line, those who spread nets, they'll lament, they'll mourn, they'll pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen, linen made with combed flax. Have you ever seen the process of taking the, 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 the grass thing that's flax and turning it into textile? It's amazing. If you know what is involved in this, then linen is an amazing thing because it's not like wool. It's not like something that seems more straightforward. You have to break the flax into little pieces and get, all, get the outside thing off, and then there's the, the part in the middle, and it's a, big, it's a whole process. But the manufacturers of linen, why is the linen industry in trouble in Egypt if there's no Nile river flow? Because the flax plant grows when the, um, when the Nile overflows. That sounds like Johnny Cochran. The flax plant grows when the Nile overflows. All right. 
<laughs> the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected. So the manufacturers of linen, the weavers of white cloth, they'll be made, the, um, let's see, uh, the summary is that they'll be utterly dejected. And the pillars of Egypt will be crushed and the higher laborers, all the higher laborers will be grieved in soul. So everybody is sad because of economic total disaster. It is devastating for the economy of Egypt if you don't have water overflowing the Nile banks every year. And now we go from the, notice what we had. We had God's going to send Assyria, and God's going to cause a problem, internal strife, and he's going to send Assyria in that moment of weakness. He's going to further destroy their economy by taking out the Nile River, and now he's going to give them idiots for rulers. So um, I don't want to be technical here, so we'll say morons. For, he, he gives them uh, fools. That's the word we want to use, Fools. The princes of Zoan. Zoan is another word for Egypt. It's one of the major districts or territories in Egypt. It's like saying uh, Judah or Israel or the southern kingdom, or Judah or the southern kingdom, or Judea or something. The princes of Zoan are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest, wisest advisors has become stupid. Fools would be rhyming with stupid there. How can you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? How can you come, how can you clueless baboons, how can you three stooges come up to Pharaoh and say, we're your wise men, see? You're idiots. And, and that's, what, that's what Isaiah is saying, is that you're not. And this is a big topic in the New Testament, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, isn't it? Isn't that a big thing about the wise men of the king? So much of the Old Testament is about what God is doing with the wise men for whatever ruler. Who's the first one? It's in Egypt. Yeah, Joseph becomes prime minister of Egypt and his wisdom saves the country from the great famine. So this is kind of like, uh, I'm going to show up in, an, in the opposite way and bring a famine instead of provide you with the golden boy who can solve your problem. I'm going to destroy your country. But, but here you've got these advisors to the king who it's, it's absurd to Isaiah that they could say, I am a son of the wise. I'm one of the wise men. Glad to meet you. I brought my uh, diploma from Harvard. Maybe you've heard of it, which means that I am supposed to be able to think critically. So moving forward, well then, where are your wise men? Where are your wise men? Please let them tell you and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. Well, uh, Pharaoh, so um, here's what we got for our wise man briefing today. The Nile is still dried up. Back to you. Well, what do you mean that the Nile is, well, it's, you know, this happened, maybe Ra is upset or, or no. The only possible explanation of reality is the one that corresponds to the actual truth. And the truth about the famine in Egypt and the civil war in Egypt and the attack of the Assyrians is that Yahweh of the armies, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is attacking you. And you would know this if a Hebrew prophet like Daniel or Joseph told you, but you don't have a Hebrew prophet. You've got these fools and they can't tell you. But hey, let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed purpose against Egypt. The princes of Zone have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are, Memphis are deluded. That's not Tennessee. That's Memphis in Egypt, the original Memphis. Uh-huh. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. So all these different words, princes, princes, the cornerstone of the tribes have led Egypt astray. 
And so now it's not just the wise men, it's the people with the decision-making power. They're messing it up. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. Remember, we already had that in verse 4, and God's going to cause the civil war problem. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. I told you that poetry will often give you visuals that you can kind of get your mind around. You get, we get this mental image of a drunken man staggering around in his own vomit. But that's what, that's what you get. That's what it looks like in your country when you have fools in power. There will be no work for Egypt, which its head or tail, its palm branch or bulrush may do. Head would be the king. Tail would be the body politic. The branch, the palm branch or bulrush is, is talking about whatever level of society. Nobody's going to have any work to do. There's nothing for it. You just have to embrace what is going to hurt. And so that's a very dim and dark picture for Egypt. Egypt has been, perhaps of all the Gentile nations in the Old Testament, um, at least one of the most used by God to show his glory. That's the whole story of the Exodus and all of the prophets point back to the law and the Exodus and the story of how God delivered them from the yoke of slavery under the Egyptians with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. And that is such a big deal. When you think of Egypt, you're supposed to think of God's redemption of his people from slavery. And here they are, again, major power to the south and west of, of Israel in comp- competition with the major power to the north and east in Assyria, with Israel pinched between these two powers. This is the geopolitics on paper. It's what CNN would report or whatever news, tech or news source you would watch. It's what the, the news people would say is going on. But the truth is that there's a God in Israel. And he's not happy with his people. They're idolaters. But he's no happier with the surrounding Gentile nations who are also idolaters. And so he's doing something. He's going to work. Uh, and he's going to, again, glorify himself in his judgment of Egypt. But now we have this catchphrase that Isaiah keeps using in these oracles, in that day, in that day. It doesn't always mean in the day of judgment that we're talking about. But it does, in this case, refer to what happens under this judgment or this weight. They have no leadership to speak of. It looks like the Marx Brothers. What, else, what other black and white stuff can I mention? It looks like Laurel and Hardy uh, or, or Abbott and Costello. I think that exhausts it. All right, so it, it looks like a bunch of fools. And um, because of the weight, because of the pressure that God is bringing, destabilizing them internally, economically, and then militarily, and in their government, in that day, the Egyptians will be like women. Now, that is offensive, offensive to our 21st century sensibilities because we have forgotten a lot of what God says about men and women. This is not complimentary toward women, but it's actually talking about the men. It's talking about the men, and just understand, in terms of God's design and the biblical worldview, men and women are not interchangeable ideas. They're complementary ideas. And when men start behaving like women, we're, ladies, we're all supposed to say, oh no, somebody get some men so that the other men don't come and kill us and worse. This is the idea in the context. There's a military invasion coming. And so it's a horror that your first line of defense is no longer a line of defense. 
Now, if this is true, if my interpretation of the statement that the Egyptians will become like women, meaning not useful for the necessary tasks of leadership and defense that the men have to do, and all the work that we just mentioned in verse 15, if that's true, then we have a serious problem of destabilization in our country and our culture today. If there is this difference where the horror in God's judgment would be that, the, that, the, that everyone's become like women, then you and I should take our polls. We should say, well, we've got some problems in our culture as well. And now, of course, what I'm spouting or what I'm saying will be rejected as toxic masculinity or just the historic truth of the difference between men and women. If you need a task for women to do, if it's a woman's task for a woman's role, then it's a really bad thing if you are relying on men to do it. And all God's women said, amen. But then we struggle with the other side of that. If it's a task that men should do, a man's role task, and you have to have women, Deborah the prophetess, do it, the judge. The story of Deborah, what about Deborah in Judges 4 and 5? She's a judgment on the nation because there are no men to rule. When you have this problem of women, uh, the, the men behaving like women, obviously, or if you have women seeking to do what you need men for, then you obviously have a huge problem. And so, um, the, now I'm not even talking about the gender confusion or the sex confusion in our culture where we're pretending like we don't know what women are anymore and all that. I'm not, I'm not even talking about the trans stuff. That's just absurd. I'm talking about the stuff that undergirds it and precedes it, where we're trying to make men and women interchangeable functionally in the civilization. It doesn't. It turns out it doesn't work. And I know we have cars and guns, and so men and women are, can be equalized in their strength and their durability that way. But, um, but it's kind of an artificial, um, kind of a prosthetic way to do it. And that day the Egyptians will be like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving hand of the Lord of hosts. Which, is going to wave, which he's going to wave over them. So the idea is that the shock and terror of those that are more helpless will, will grip the souls of those who should be the strong and the, and the resolute. And they're going to panic and they're going to fall apart because God's pressure is greater than they could ever manage, than they could respond to. And so I'm not saying women are weak, understand. I'm saying women are women. And when your men begin to act like women, you have... Um, you have a, a horrific circumstance. What are women supposed to act like? I don't, I don't think I have to go into that, do I? Let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs 31 and see what women are supposed to act like. What is lady wisdom like throughout the book of Proverbs? That's, that's a good place to start. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 5? Sorry, 1 through 6 about being daughters of Sarah and... and Read your Bibles. All right. In verse 17, the the land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Now, this is interesting. Judah is a small place with no military. We're supposed to go make, uh, not much military. They're going to go make an alliance with the Egyptians and pay them from their treasury. And the Egyptians will be their military champion. Now, these people who have been demoralized will will become terrified of Judah. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it. So the whole world is, uh, of, of the Egyptians are frightened because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts which, with which, uh, which he is purposing against them. So God has a plan and purpose against the Egyptians and he's going to bring it, both barrels, uh, to their front door. And so it demoralizes them and that is judgment. But now we switch. 
another in that day. In that day, the day that's further, Isaiah is, that, that's a phrase, that's a technical like catchphrase for Isaiah, where he almost, it's almost like he extends the telescope out and looks further down the, the hills of prophecy to the next that day. And that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan, Hebrew, and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. We just turned a major corner in the oracle. After all this whipping, after all this judgment God's going to bring, that's going to demoralize the people and break them down, there's a coming in that day that they will worship Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. One will be called, one of the cities will be called the city of destruction. Apparently a monument to God's discipline and wrath with this desired consequence. So now you're like, well, if that's true, it has to be in the future that this is all going to take place. And I don't know how to resolve that. I think you just have to look, when they worship Yahweh, they'll look back on their history and say, we did rebel against him, we did worship false gods, we did believe the sun was the greatest god of all Ra, and we repented of that, now we worship the god who made the sun. Because they will, because that's their destiny, that's the future of Egypt. And that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to Yahweh near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to Yahweh because of oppressors. He will send them a savior and a champion. He will deliver them. We want you to save us. This sounds just like the judges. When they cried out to the Lord after he brought an oppressor, he would bring it, raise up a deliverer to save them. And now that cycle, that, that idea of the judges is applied in the future, in the millennial coming kingdom to Egypt. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. So God makes himself known and the consequence is that the people know him. That's exactly what that poetic rhyme does. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to Yahweh and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord. He will respond to them and heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. These are the two countries we're worried about. And Assyria did conquer Egypt, 671. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians, Yahweh. <laughs> They'll worship God. These are, this is insane. This is something, you cannot have these people that worship sticks or, or the sun or whatever, or nature. You cannot, it's crazy that they would completely eschew all that, like the Moabites with their false gods. And then one would say, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people, as Ruth says. That's what that Moabite did. And that's what's going to happen. This is what happens to all the nations in the coming kingdom. They're all going to basically throw down their weapons of rage against God, hit their knees and say, you're our creator, we worship you. And we do it in the name of your son, Jesus, God the Son, who died for our sins. And that is the conversion. That's, what's going to be the, that's what the kingdom will be like. The Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria. Notice that you have the pincher. You have the, the people to the south and west. And you have people to the north and east, the two big empires with the people in the middle and the squeeze. So they'll all worship together. A blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands and Israel, my inheritance. This got really dark in the, the different ways it described God's judgment of 
national uh, military disaster, economic disaster, and then finally the, um, the, uh, the, the, the rulers are going to be fools, and so they lead the country into, into failure. And then we come to God solving the problem that he brings through his correction, and the ultimate arc of Egyptian history tends toward glory in the Jewish Messiah. Father, we thank you for the glorious future of our Gentile nation, of all the nations, because of the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. We thank you for the hope that we have in the coming kingdom and what it looks like among all the nations. Father, what a clear statement we have that is, if it, if it were not that we deal with a God of miracles, we would consider this to be some sort of fantasy that all these idolaters and pagans with all their different cultural traditions would embrace you through your son. God, let us see it. May the Lord come for us soon. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.